me, let's pray together. Father, again, we are so profoundly thankful that your greatness never wavers, doesn't change from week to week. No matter what it is happening in our world, in the headlines, or how we feel in terms of physically, Lord, you're still great and greatly to be praised. And so, Lord, thank you today for these wonderful elements of our worship, reminding us that you are a God of the nations. You're not just a God who understands and speaks English, but you are a God who understands all the languages of the world and desire to have representation from all those language groups with you in heaven someday. So, Lord, we thank you for your heart of compassion and love for the world and for the diversity of your church. Thank you, Father, for the ministry early this summer of, Bible, of uh, Vacation Bible School. And thank you, Father, for the opportunity to look into your word today. Surely, your, Lord, your word helps us to understand what it means to love others and to think about what it means for you to have loved us. So we pray you guide us through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, is a very interesting sentence that Luke begins this second book that he's written. He had already written one book, the Gospel of Luke, we know it to be. And this is his second book that he's written. And he starts off with these interesting words. He says, the first account I composed, Acts 1.1, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. He's, he's saying, I've already spoken to you and written to you about what Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospel of Luke. I gave you all this his teaching, so many of the, of the uh, stories, so many of the sermons he preached, so many of his dialogue with different people. And last week we noticed that <clears throat> God revealed himself <clears throat> in a Trinitarian way, and that the Father um, gave unto the Son... <clears throat> And, and uh, encouraged him to teach all that he had been given from the Father. Jesus Christ revealed the Father to us in his teaching and to his disciples. And he now has sent the Holy Spirit, who now teaches us by applying those things, uh, leading the apostles into the truth so that they would make sure they wrote the New Testament correctly. And therefore, we have an account of who God is in the precious pages of the Word of God. Now, notice in this opening sentence of Acts, Luke reinforces this Trinitarian uh, understanding, if you will. And notice that he makes it clear that Jesus continued to teach. His teaching did not just immediately come to an end when he was ascended. But he continues to teach through his apostles, through the members of the early church, through the power of the Spirit of God. And Jesus Christ, by inference, I'm going to suggest to you, taught through the early believers. And Jesus continues to teach through his followers, even today. Think about that for a moment. That's why it's so significant that when we talk about teaching one another, we are talking about Jesus working through individual believers to make an impact upon other believers through the witness and through the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at the vertical dimension of this revelation of God teaching us through his word, his objective written word. Today, I'm going to think more about this horizontal teaching of one another within a body of Christ. 
Now, before I go further, let me just give you a parenthetical statement here. I understand that in the scriptures, there is a subset of believers who have a gift of teaching. And there are, yes, some Christians who are set apart to serve as shepherds, as elders. And one of their qualifications of their role within the church is that they are to be able to teach 1 Timothy 3. And so we understand that these who are able to teach, pastor teachers, are designed to equip the believers within the local church so that they can do the work of ministry. But what the Bible also makes clear is that every believer is to be a teacher who proclaims the truth of the gospel to other believers and to other people in general. We are to teach one another. And that's why we're in our text now this morning of Colossians chapter 3. So if you got your Bible, that's really where we're going to anchor our thoughts today. Page 1402 in your pew Bible. Colossians chapter 3. We had started this last week. This is part two. So let's listen again carefully to this verse of Scripture. By the way, when you read the word let the word of Christ, the word let, that's a command. It's actually may this happen is what he's saying. Uh, this should be happening. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, to God. So what we understand him to say here is that every Christian is a minister. All of us are called to the mutual ministry of teaching other members of the body of Christ. God revealed truth to us. We looked at that last week. And as we read, as we study, as we listen to the word and memorize the word and ponder the word of God, God by his grace chooses to use us to teach others what we're learning about God and His Word as part of His gospel-building ministry within our church. Now, some of you may be saying, okay, now you, you've started, uh, I followed you when you talked about certain people have the gift of the teaching, but now you're starting to talk more broadly about all of us, and you're hearing about this reciprocal command to love one another by teaching one another, and you say, wait a minute, I sort of identify with Moses. Moses was told to go start talking and teaching other people. He said, listen, I'm not able to do this, Moses said. Surely you have someone else who is better equipped, someone who is more suited for this kind of ministry. Well, let me just say, God does not need eloquent speakers. That's why he has me here. I'm certainly not an eloquent speaker. I'm just from West Virginia. I still have my West Virginia accent. People think I'm from down south somewhere. But that's part of who I am. But let me remind you, God doesn't need eloquent speakers. God is not limited in what he can do. He even used Balaam's donkey to speak to Balaam what he needed to hear at that moment. So I'm not making any strong correlations there, but just understand my point. God can use anyone within whom the Word of God is dwelling richly. Anyone. And he does so. It's amazing. He uses ordinary people like you and me to minister to each other the Word of God. We are ambassadors. We are speaking on behalf of our King. We are saying His message to each other 
and to the world. And when we think about all that Jesus began to do and teach, being found in the Gospels, all that Jesus continued to do and continued to teach throughout the apostles and with the early church is recorded in the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 28. What we could say today is that Jesus, what he is doing through you and me, could be thought of, and this is nothing original new to me, many people have said it, we can think of it as like Acts 29, the 29th chapter of Acts is you and me who are continuing to, to minister with Christ ministering through us to each other and to our world. Jesus has not stopped ministering. He has not stopped teaching through his people. And so I hope you'll get excited as we think about what that looks like for you and me. Now, I'd like to take just a few moments now in our, our thoughts into two general headings, two horizontal implications, if you will, about what it means to teach one another in love. This is the way you express love to each other, is to teach each other. First of all, I'd like to think about the preparation for mutual teaching. What does it mean to be prepared to be a person who can do mutual teaching about the Word of Christ. Some people assume that just because they are familiar with certain passages of Scripture, that they therefore are well prepared for this concept of mutual teaching. But I assure you there's more to it than just knowledge. That's important. I don't want to undermine that. But there's more going on to in this verse 16 than maybe first might seem apparent to you. Because Paul assumes that one of the essential ways to be prepared to teach other believers is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now some of you are saying, I thought your seminary training told you to keep your finger on the text, and where in the world did you get that out of this text? Well, I'd like to encourage you when you're studying the Bible is to always compare Scripture with Scripture. That's a very important biblical principle of interpretation. And if you compare this text of Colossians 3:16 with Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, you will notice there are many similarities in those two verses. Ephesians 5:18 says, "Don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the spirit." And what's the evidence of being filled with the spirit? Speak to one another at home, psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, being thankful. He goes on to talk about those are the evidences of being filled with the spirit. Submitting to one another. Here in this text, we're told to have the word of Christ dwelling richly in us. And what? The evidence of that will be, verse 16, teaching, admonishing each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, being thankfulness in your hearts to God. Very similar kinds of outward evidences of having the word of Christ dwell in us or, be, or being filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I am going to suggest to you that these two concepts are really one and the same. They are two sides of the same coin. And that's, that means, therefore, that God-honoring teaching that you and I are to be involved in is teaching that is under the control of the Holy Spirit. When Paul wrote these words, he was writing to a church there in Colossae that was facing, it was, he was writing against the backdrop of some very serious false teaching that was beginning to take hold within the church, as was true in so many other letters he wrote in the New Testament. There were those who were taking up roles of teaching within the church, and they were insisting that there was greater fullness of spirituality to be gained in secret knowledge, 
Knowledge that only a few people could discover and know. And that secret knowledge could be known apart from Jesus Christ. And therefore, they implied to this church there in Colossae that the greater knowledge you had, the greater freedom you had, therefore you didn't need to have all these things that Paul was talking about and all this teaching that had come to them through the gospel. And they were denigrating the value and the worth of Jesus Christ. And Paul is, is just passionately showing how that is so false and so erroneous and so contrary to the reality that Jesus Christ is everything. If you read Colossians, it's just one of the most Christ-centered of all the apostles, telling us so many wonderful things about him. And so Paul is pointing out that the, tr that, that the, the true fullness of having the Spirit of God and controlling our lives and, and, and having an influence in us is not to be found in esoteric private revelation or ecstatic experiences that some of these people were claiming. It was to be found in the word about Jesus Christ. It is to be found in Jesus Christ himself who revealed to us the revelation of God himself. And therefore, the more richly we have these things in us, the more obviously we will be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, I'm saying all these things because we live in a day and age where more and more people affirm the fact that they are spiritual people. Oh, yeah, I'm into spirituality, they say. And that is so vague and so wide open, it doesn't really mean anything. And they're relying essentially on their own wisdom, on their own insights, what they think makes sense in the spiritual realm. And they claim, some of them claim to be a part of the oneness of God. But Paul here is saying, listen, we are wise and we will be much more likely to be under the control of the Holy Spirit if we become so much so that the Word of God is like at home in us. It's a part of who we are. It's just we're, we're thinking it. We're meditating on it. We're, we're very much careful in looking at the revelation of God in the Scriptures so that we can evaluate, so that we can assess and, 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 and defend against all false teachings of many people who come and say, well, this is nice spiritual truth, but it may not be contrary to what Jesus has taught us in the Word of God. Here's my point. Not all teaching is sound. So if we're going to start speaking to each other and teaching each other, let's make sure that what we're saying agrees with the Spirit, agrees with the Word of God, and is sound. Make sure it's truthful. Look at Colossians chapter 2, just a couple pages over, or one page over. Colossians 2, verse 22. Paul, again, is dealing with false teaching. He's dealing with some of these statements that have been made by these uh, folks who believe this esoteric knowledge is so important to have and they've discounted Christ. And he says, oh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's quoting some of their teaching. And then he says in verse 22, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. See, Paul is making a distinction between what the Spirit has inspired people to write and what we've learned through Jesus Christ versus what people have come up with, their own spiritual thoughts. Their own ideas about spirituality. And if you look further on in Paul's writings in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he speaks of some who came and taught about the importance of not being married. Which, by the way, I know of one particular church that encourages a subsection of people not to be married. But he says that people who teach such things are the teachings of demons and evil spirits. Here's my point. My point is, 
that some people claim to speak on behalf of God. Many quote-unquote spiritual people claim to speak on behalf of God. They claim to have received a vision from God or a vision of God or a vision from Mary or of Mary or to have received a vision from the angel Moroni. So they write them on some sort of tablets, which is, of course, the Mormon beginnings. But it's absolutely essential. If we are to be effective teachers, we must have the word about Jesus Christ at home in our hearts, in our minds, that we know our way around the word of God. We know what things are contrary to the word of God because we're so familiar with them. We hear somebody else speaking. So that doesn't jive. That, that's not what I've read in the word. Therefore, we are able to distinguish between sound teaching from God and false teaching from the deceiver. Now, I want to take just a moment here. I'm not really digressing completely here, but I'm giving an example of how this is a pervasive problem in our day and age. I was shocked to read not too long ago that the best-selling, quote-unquote, evangelical book in the last 10 years selling a total of over 7 million copies. If you sell 1 million, that's amazing. But 7 million copies is the story about a four-year-old boy, Cotton Burpo, who claimed to have visited heaven. Four-year-old boy. The book is titled, Heaven is for Real. I believe there's a movie that's been based on that since then. The, the four-year-old boy was actually anesthetized for an appendectomy, and somewhere between that point and later on, he made a number of statements about what he was claiming to have seen. He claimed that he got a halo when he went to heaven. He got real wings, didn't think they fit too well. He sat on Jesus' lap while the angels sang to him. And he saw the Holy Spirit who, quote, was kind of blue. I'm not making this up. This is, this is a book that sold 7 million copies. This is like a new genre, a new literary uh, um, um, category that's now quite popular in the book-selling world of, as one author said, heaven tourism. People claiming to go heaven, visit for a while, and come back. And then they write about it. Matter of fact, there's six or seven other accounts of books similarly who have sold tons of copies. But interestingly enough that they give contradictory accounts. They don't agree. And therefore, they're sowing confusion and doubt. There's a, there's a great deal of self-focus in much of their writing. It's all about what they saw, what their impressions were. There's little attention played to the glory of God alarmingly little attention to the glory of God. Because when you read the scriptures, and there are about three biblical authors that, that reveal a number of, of uh, insights about heaven, biblical accounts, and the individual writing that always is overwhelmed by the greatness of God. Sometimes they're down on their, their faces before God, put to silence by the sheer majesty of God and His holiness. But all of these accounts are much different than that. And sadly enough, John 3.13 tells us that Scripture says people don't go to heaven and then back and return. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So there are no journeys being taken by dead people to heaven. They might be having visions and they're claiming these visions, 
but they are not journeys by there. One more quick thing I want to say about this, even more sadly, another book that sold too many copies, sold by a very well-known uh, Baptist label, was entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, written by Kevin Malarkey, who claimed that uh, his son, Alex, who also had his name as a part of the author there, at the age of six, now this is much more tragic, this little boy, age six, six years old, was nearly killed. His, his vertebrae was snapped. Uh, he went through tremendous amount of operations, painful suffering, uh, left him uh, paralyzed partially uh, by an auto accident. Just recently, this Kevin Malarkey, uh, sorry, Alex, Alex Malarkey, who, who at the age of six is when all this first supposedly happened, he's now at least in his teens, if not 20s. He and his mother have been writing as far as they can to make it known that they do not endorse that book. Apparently the mother and father have since divorced. The father kept having the book promoted and sold and it did keep selling. And this is the final statement from someone in which the son Alex says, the story is embellished, it is exaggerated, and he has publicly disclaimed the book. This is what he wrote, quote, this is Alex Malarkey. Terrible last name, because unfortunately, that is, the, that is the essence of the book. The book is Malarkey, sorry, okay. This is what he says, I did not die, he says. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made claims that I did, when I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. He's only six years old when it happened. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. What's my point? I know I went into a lot of detail on that, but here's my point. There's much that goes around that people claim is truth. But we need to be very careful in not concurring with that if it is contradictory to the Word of God. And we need to know the Word of God. We need to keep reading it, keep studying it, keep becoming familiar with it so that when you hear something that doesn't agree with you, you're like, that doesn't stack up with Scripture. You follow the Scriptures. Therefore, what we're likely to say to each other, hopefully, will be much more reliable. Who wants the hope of heaven from somebody who's a four-year-old or a six-year-old who's what they're saying is not true? We want to stick with the scriptures. They are sufficient. They are inspired by God. They are profitable for us. They are indeed truth. Okay, I think we got the point on that. Second point, and that's more practical, let's talk about the guidelines for mutual teaching. <clears throat> there are several guidelines we find here in verse 16 of Colossians 3 about how we're to teach the word of Christ to each other. First of all, and there are three different key words here I'm going to, show, I'm going to give you for your notes. First of all, we're told that we ought to teach wisely. He says, in all wisdom, teach wisely. What does it mean to teach wisely? Well, first of all, I would just want to say it, it's got to be more than just blurting out a verse to somebody when you notice that they have a problem. Um, a wise approach is going to consider how the truth needs to be applied to this person, but only doing so when they have taken the time to adequately listen to the person 
ask some good questions of that person, try to clarify what this person is believing, what this person is assuming, what this person is thinking, how they're reacting, how they're interpreting their situation. And therefore, you're going to do so, rather than just give them a bunch of verses, you're going to try to understand what it is they really are thinking and believing. That sometimes takes time. Sometimes we don't have a lot of time, I realize, but uh, a wise teacher is not going to offer superficial, here's a little band-aid to put on your little problem, go and, uh, you know, put this on and everything's going to be fine. No, we are to apply the biblical principles to real-life situations. You try to help people understand how the Bible is to be applied to their problem. So that, for example, you don't just walk up to someone who's just wiped out on his bicycle and start quoting Romans 8, 28, and 29. At that point, I needed some medical care. I needed to get to where I could get some... uh, uh, you know, bandages on me so not, the blood is not going over, excuse me, but I mean, it was not a pretty sight. The point is this. Wisdom says, I see what's going on in your life, and in love, I pray about it, I think about it, and I begin to understand where the, there's an area where this could help you understand more about who Christ is. Understand more. If you're weighed down with your sin and your guilt and your past, you can't enjoy the love of Christ because you feel as though you're so caught up in how poorly you've been living for him, you've misunderstood who Christ is and who you are in Christ. And therefore, having the opportunity to sit down and explain that, using the scriptures, reminding them of the gospel is a wonderful way to wisely show how to apply that in the everyday situation of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I would say asking God to give you wisdom. And I think this is really what parents do, and it's really what we do as spiritual parents, is that we want to think, how does the Bible speak to situations in which there's conflict resolution? How does the Bible speak to uh, dealing with anger issues? How does the Bible speak to issues of edifying others with our words? Knowing the Scripture and knowing how to address those things and how to practically think through that and apply it to life will make you a very helpful teacher, believe me. And I'm thankful that I had many people in my life who've done that. It's helped me tremendously. I still need to be taught (laughs) these truths over and over again. Uh, Another point here we want to make here is that in teaching other believers, we're to do so, and this is sort of a 10-cent word, holistically. Holistically. Say, where'd you get that? Well, back up to verse 12 and following. Again, every text has a context, so if you look at what Paul has been saying in the text, he's encouraging these believers to put on and apply to their hearts character traits that hopefully will become more evident in time, compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, put on love. What he's saying here is, if we truly have the word of Christ richly dwelling within us, our lives are to some extent, obviously not perfectly, to some extent we're going to pray and hope that there's a measure of Christ-likeness in our life. Because if we're angry, impatient, uncaring, resentful, arrogant with other people, guess what? The impact of our teaching is going to be very, very small. Who wants to hear somebody who's impatiently yelling at them and saying, come on, man, what's wrong with you? You need to be praying more, you know, like whatever. It doesn't seem to help that much. 
I'm sure many of you have heard. I've heard it many, many times. It's not original to me. People don't care what we know until they know that we care. So that's what I think he's saying here in this text. Holistically, you've got to put the whole thing together. You can't just walk up to somebody and dump a lot of verses on them and think that that's going to teach them. You've got to be patient with them. You may have had to say the same thing three weeks ago. You've got to come alongside with them and patiently listen to them. And then with a sense of understanding, compassion, and with great kindness, they may have said something that hurt you a couple weeks ago. You're going to put that in the past. We've forgiven that. We're going to now deal with them where they are right now. I'm convinced that how we live and how we relate to other people determines to a great extent how effective our teaching is going to be. That's a powerful principle, folks. Right there, I just said a mouthful. And that's why Paul said to the Thessalonian believers, he reminded them of how did he approach them when he came and he was living. Because they kept thinking, he doesn't care about us. You know why? They said, Paul, you, you, you're not here. You ran away. And the reason why is because there was lots of violence against the apostle. His life was in danger. And so he, he left town quickly. They encouraged him. The leaders said, you need to get out of here. So he left. And some of them are thinking, ah, he doesn't really care about us. And Paul goes back to remind them. Here's his, here's his approach. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. He said, having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. See, that, that, that makes for an effective teaching scenario is when you care about people and you conduct yourself in a way that reinforces your teaching, where you're modeling some of the concepts that you're trying to impose, not impose, to impact other people's lives. So that's when Paul reminded Titus that when we live godly lives by being honest, by being cooperative, we do what? We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We, we decorate it. We make it look all the more glorious with our lives that are living out similarly to what we're saying to other people. Are you ready for the third and final point? Okay, two of you are. Okay, here we go. Thirdly, <clears throat> practical implication about how to be an effective teacher is to teach worshipfully and corporately. It's not just one-on-one. -on -one. What Paul says here in verse 316 is he says, As our hearts are filled to the brim, with the word of God and the words about Christ, we cannot help but spill over in song and thankfulness in our adoration of God. It just comes out of us. And so corporate worship has not only a vertical, ouch, sorry, a vertical dimension, <laughs> a, a sense of which, yes, we're offering our praise and our gratitude to God. That certainly has to be the core of worship. But when we're gathered with other believers, there's something going on horizontally with each other. Every believer benefits from hearing the gospel message celebrated again and again, reviewed again and again. How? In words of the songs that we sing in worship. And so we participate in the singing of great hymns in our church and other modern songs that Christians have written to express the fact that we are joining with countless saints who have worshipped the same God and we are joining with them and we're affirming the fact that this theology has been put to music and that's the expression of my heart. 
How many of you know that song that says, It is well with my soul? Right? Written by a man whose family members, his daughters, were all killed in a, in a, in a, uh, a ship that went down. His wife was alone, was preserved. And so he goes and he's writing these words as he covers, covers the ground of where that ship sort of went down. He's going to get his wife. And he's saying, Lord, it's well with my soul. Even though I'm sad, even though I've been weighed down by this tremendous loss, my soul is open to you. My soul still worships you. He celebrates the gospel, you know. All of my sins have been fully forgiven and cleansed through Christ. It, it's well with my soul. It's amazing how the music that we sing week after week becomes a part of us so that you can sing it even elsewhere. My mind went back this week to an incident where our dear sister Carol Clark, who suffered a, a very serious uh, physical stroke, I guess it was, and... Uh, Back in, uh, when was it, November of last year, she did an announcement for, remember the boxes, uh, for the, uh, the, the kids' boxes, shoe boxes? And uh, then the next week, she's just totally um, in a coma. So I joined, uh, my wife and I joined with members of Carol's family. We gathered there by her bedside at Brookhaven Hospital. And you know one of the things we did? Started singing hymns, because we knew Carol loved music. We weren't sure she could really hear anything we're singing. But guess what? It was a way for us to repeat the gospel to ourselves. It was a way for us to celebrate that God is a God of hope. In the most difficult and most sad situations, looking at Carol and her weakness in her body situation, we're thanking the God that he is the God who rescues those who are weak. He has given us a hope through Jesus Christ. And so those words not only for, were for each other, they went down and echoed through the hallways of Brookhaven Hospital. Now, did we have a hymnal with us? No. We were just singing words that we had learned over all that time. It became a part of us. It's a wonderful way to what? Strengthen each other in our faith and celebrate the glories of Christ. That's why I find singing at a funeral, singing the great hymns of the faith, singing songs of great praise to God, is so uniquely Christian. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing to do. And may I just say one more th thought about music? Someone has said that music is a window into the soul. So how do we interpret then people who come and they might sit here with us, but they don't sing. They don't even mouth the words. They just sit there. Well, again, I don't know. They may have a sore throat, may have laryngitis. Okay, I'll give them that. We don't know their hearts, so uh, please don't hear me saying I'm trying to pick on you. But I am saying, if you are able, if God has given you a voice, and even if you're not a great singer, all oh, the benefits of joining together with the saints to sing of God, to sing with the hymns and psalms and spiritual songs about the greatness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't just merely mouth the words. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you as you sing these songs there to hopefully have you echoing, thinking about scriptures that you're aware of and know of, and you could therefore be all the more thrilled of who Christ is. And it spills over into this song. I came across a quote from Bob Coughlin, who is the worship leader at Sovereign Grace Churches. He's written many contemporary hymns and stuff. He wrote this, he said, Emotionless singing is an oxymoron. 
emotionless singing is somewhat of a contra contradictory terms being put together. In other words, when we sing and we're singing about the things of God, it's to be sort of striking the chords of our soul, of our, of our being. This is, this is so true. God, this is, who I, this is what I believe about you. And therefore, it's an expression of my heart. And when you do so, my friend, even though you may not be a great singer, you are now in the habit of weekly, week after week, mutually teaching each other these great truths of the faith. We're expressing thanks to God in weeks of blessing, weeks of gladness, as well as weeks of sadness and weeks of suffering. Guess what one of the first thoughts that came to my mind after I said to myself, oh, this is not good, when I wiped out on my bike yesterday. I got myself up, thankful that I was able to move all my, my, my uh, extremities. and I'm still breathing. I was, had my helmet on. And the next thing I began to think of was, I remember standing down here saying, there's sometimes we worship God when we're suffering. And I began to have all those thoughts, bless the Lord, oh my soul. All those things just started flooding into my head. I'm in pain, I'm not a very happy camper, but that's where my mind went. Now is that just because I'm some kind of way beyond where you are? No, I think that's because the Holy Spirit was working in my heart, preparing me for that moment, because we sing in that song even last Sunday and even today. All right, let me draw this to a close. I've given you a quote by Milton Gregory, one of the great teachers who has a lot of insight about how to be an effective teacher. He made this observation. True teaching, then, is not that which gives knowledge, but that which stimulates pupils to gain it. That is, it whets your appetite for more and more. You're a good teacher if you want people to learn more and more. And so I would say to you, in our singing, in our rehearsing of the gospel, does it, want, does it make you want to know more and more of Christ? To make more and more of Him? To be more and more amazed by Him? You know, one of the most widely sung hymns ever is Amazing Grace. And yet I'm convinced so many people sing it and they have no clue what they're singing because they don't understand what it is to be a sinner who is miserable, helpless, condemned under the wrath of God, who is remarkably saved by the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ and his blood shed for them. That person does not understand what it means to be saved by grace. If you do, how can you not sing it and be absolutely amazed? Amazed. Let's be a people who teach each other with hearts that are just overflowing with the word about Christ and the love of Christ in our hearts. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we are aware of how powerful your word is. Lord, surely you have gone a great effort to bring us your word. It is indeed so valuable to us, so precious to us. Lord, I pray that you would help those of us who are trying to develop some habits now, Lord. We'll begin to uh, read the Word on a regular basis, to think about it, to, to have less entertainment around us and more meditation over your Word. Father, fill us, we pray, with the truths about Christ, that we might be a people who are overflowing in gratitude, overflowing in praise, that our singing not only is bubbling up from our hearts throughout the week, but Lord, when we gather here, 
week after week with each other. Lord, we are teaching each other these wonderful truths from your word as we put them and marry them to music. And Father, I pray that as we become a people who teach each other, I pray that you would guide us into the truth that we might affirm what really is true in keeping with your word and help us, Lord, to do so wisely, being sensitive, being careful to make what we say practical to each other and helpful not to just lay burdens on each other but to build each other in our, up in our like precious faith. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.